0: To, to ship, ship of, course. of course. Hey y'all, welcome to this episode of The Ship Show. I'm your host, Paul Reed, Sober Build, and John Twitter, and it's SoberBuildEngineer.com. And today we have a full panel. Who's here with me? This is Seth Yusuf, at Build Scientist on Twitter, BuildScientist.com. And this is Seth, at CheesePlus on Twitter. And we also have a new contender in the ring today. Everyone, please welcome Sasha Bates, better known as the bratty redhead. How's it going, Sasha? <laughs>
1: uh, it's great, thanks. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: Yeah, uh, I noticed on your Twitter profile it says you're a derp ops expert.
1: Oh yeah, well, so that's just because you know uh, if I can do it wrong the first time, I generally do. <laughs> Possibly <laughs> fail the third times too. Yes. Yeah. Fail I fail often and fast. It's true.
0: Yeah. Well, and sure then you can, and you can uh, share those with us so we can hopefully you know fail in different ways. <sighs> fail <laughs> better
1: hopefully, hopefully, yes I, I love that people can learn from my mistakes
0: <laughs> hey, well it's great to have you here you know uh, I, I actually found your blog and you have uh, some amazingly insightful posts I actually I think You swallowed like two hours of an afternoon where I was just glued to your blog, clicking around and reading how you're not a fangirl for Apple stuff, but you totally are. I
1: totally am.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Well, uh, great to have you here. So for episode five, we're going to be trying to answer the question, is there such a thing as too much automation? But first, as always, we do our news and view segments. But before we do that, I wanted to give a quick shout out to all of our new listeners who found us via the DevOps Weekly Newsletter. Uh, Gareth Rushgrove, the editor, gave us a shout-out in the last newsletter, and it's great to have you all aboard and with us. I actually joined the newsletter, and unfortunately, I haven't seen the newsletter where we got the shout-out, but I heard on Twitter people were talking about it, uh, and I subscribed, so uh, if you are into uh, weekly updates on DevOps stuff, that's a good newsletter to take a look at. So, news and views this week. What do we have? Yusuf, you brought up Amazon Glacier, Amazon announced Glacier this week. Yeah, yeah.
2: So uh, Amazon made an announcement, I guess, last week or the week before about this new uh, data archiving service called Amazon uh, Glacier. And uh, the interesting thing about it to me is that they're uh, they're actually competing with a lot of the off-site data providers, you know, companies like uh, Iron Mountain, Recall, where traditionally people uh, send their backup tapes or their optical discs with uh Data that they've archived and it's uh, stored off site. So, you know, Amazon, I guess, capitalizing on their existing uh, uh, infrastructure for AWS, so just you know, decided to um, start this service. So what they've done is they've you know, put together this uh, interface to allow you to um, archive your, I guess, long-term data. I say long-term because they, they've got some uh, pretty interesting SLAs. I think the idea is, is that uh, to retrieve a chunk of data takes you know, anywhere between, I guess, three to five hours, and your data only um, is accessible for uh, uh, 24 hours, which, interestingly enough, kind of matches on to a little bit of how the the offsite data providers uh, work. You know, you, you call up a container, and you've got your your tapes or your optical discs and then you're charged based on you know how long you keep your uh, container for. So I'm kind of interested to see how a lot of the uh, specifically people who have to retain their data, you know, large financial services firms are going to be you know either jumping over to Amazon Glacier or kind of. Uh, using their services, uh, maybe as a, you know, in kind
0: of a hybrid model with some of the offsite providers. So I'm looking forward to this. I actually, for a long time, have been doing personal backups to S3. And it's, it's real, you know, a lot of people use Dropbox for that. But I had it all scripted and everything before Dropbox became really popular. And it seems like this is a even a cheaper way to do that kind of stuff. Because, you know, I don't retrieve that data very often at all. And you can get kind of the same thing. Even cheaper, though.
2: Well, you know, their, their, their price points are, are, are kind of interesting. I think the idea is, is that if you're doing a lot of frequent retrievals, that's probably not the right um, storage service to be using. Again, you know, Glacier, they, I guess... The idea behind the name and the services—this is, you know, is really long-term storage. You're going to have to be retrieving stuff every day. You should probably look at a different type of service. Um, the, the use cases that I can think of, you know, are for data that you've, uh, backed up or a lot of long-term reporting or historical. I'm thinking, you know, specifically from the financial services firms perspective that you want to store and, but you don't need that data online immediately but you know you'll you want to be able to store that somewhere the other interesting thing is i i, I think there's probably a bevy of services like there's a lot of companies out there who have spun up interfaces to s3 uh, i suspect that there's probably going to be you know companies that, that have management solutions or or maybe even um you know different uh, or content management solutions are going to interface or develop interfaces to to glacier to allow you to kind of you know figure out or, or sort of the most way of, of not only storing your data, but retrieving it as well.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think another use case actually would be build storage. If you have a lot of official bits that you've shipped, but you only access them every once in a while from a enterprise official build perspective, it could be a great place to, to store all of that stuff if you don't need to access it very often so uh next news item I think a lot of people heard about the the Java zero day exploit that had been going around I guess last week they Oracle released me out of band update for it this week but what's interesting is uh, there's it looks like Oracle possibly knew about this exploit for over a month and didn't didn't actually roll up a security fix for it thought it was an interesting item just because a lot of our infrastructure, Uh, that we deal with, uh, you know, runs, uh, uses the JVM, and now people are seemingly questioning whether uh, Oracle's being a good steward of the JVM if they're uh, not responding. What do you guys think about this?
3: So they always, these these articles are always interesting because they say Oracle knew about currently exploited Java vulnerabilities, which is is likely true if you read it in the sense that it was on their bug tracker, or they, you know, received an email. So it's one of those... Did they actually? You know, they always seem to frame it as like Oracle knew and was like planning on not releasing it, versus they may have just not actually like come across it in the bug tracker yet, um, or it wasn't in their release cycle, and so they weren't paying attention to it. As opposed to kind of like pretending they didn't know about it. I think it's a distinct difference.
0: No, that, yeah, that's actually a really good point. But I still think what what's interesting is from a security ah. vulnerability perspective. Really, I mean, what matters these days, right? You've got the JVM, which is Jenkins uses a lot of tools use it, um, and you know you've got web browsers, and, and and then of course you've got Flash, and but those are the the big ones where you you keep hearing oh you know zero day exploits. I was talking with a couple clients this week, and they were actually looking at whether or not they could move their stuff over the uh, one of the open JVMs because they. You know, even if it was in the bug tracker and they didn't come across it, if it took them that long to kind of address it. And I think in retrospect, people, you know, Oracle will probably say, well, we fixed it within a week. But if they knew about it and they could have gotten it into another release, then it's an out-of-band update for everyone, you know, on our side, You know, if you're using it, we have to deploy it. So uh, it's interesting. I, I think we'll see how Oracle handles the next one. But it's it's kind of... Something to keep an eye on. Certainly, well, they already
3: they already say that they didn't actually they fixed that bug and that they've actually got another, even in the, even in their out of band update, they have another problem like another security vulnerability in that particular patch.
1: So oh, already actually. they've
3: kind of uh, they've kind of got somebody somebody's come back in and been like, oh no, not quite fixed. <laughs> so uh,
2: so I is mean, this is this an issue with just Java Seven or, or is it all
0: previous versions of, of Java? You know, I didn't. Look, I actually don't know. I didn't look. It was, at the... uh,
3: it, was it was Java seven.
0: Okay, I,
2: I I don't know anybody who's, who's using Java seven in production. I'm not I was going to
1: ask that too. I was like, how many people are actually there? I mean, I know people who are still using one dot five, one dot four, even sometimes.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah. So, the
1: bigger your enterprise, the younger, the older your Java, right? Yeah, yeah.
3: That's the true. older, yeah, the, the no. lower.
0: The... Yeah, we're still in Java three. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, that's actually a good point, Sasha. I didn't even think of that. I do know uh, I have a client that's actually got a project to move everything to Java 7. So certainly I think people are starting to move their products to Java 7 because, you know, a lot of times there's support requirements in terms of, you know, are the older JVMs even supported? And then if they're not, you know, how does that affect clients that have to do socks reporting or whatever it is right yeah I
1: wonder how many people would be using it and what what size they are because I also have done some work with enterprises and they don't generally care that things aren't supported anymore They're, they either just you know soldier on without support or they just pay for it anyway
3: there, I mean, there, there are entire industries that exist on the, the laziness of large corporations to move like <laughs> to right, I mean really JVM.
1: I just I I still uh, I've had an enterprise client who I think they just got off red Hat for just <laughs> like like I, this summer.
3: I was I was I was around using like Solaris, like like Spark Hardware Solaris, and I'm like, guys, this is twenty ten, right? Like <laughs> just just making sure.
0: Oh, that's kitschy though, Solaris hardware.
3: Oh yeah. Well it is it was it was kitschy and it was it was really good. But you know, it was we're just like I was like, Yeah, we just moved to Red Hat five.
0: Like we didn't even move that far ahead even for right. the time. <laughs> so Seth, you pointed out an article about Etsy and their servers. So, yeah, so Etsy has a, uh, they have, uh,
3: they're, they've always been very open with their data, and so they released an article uh, on their Code Craft blog about the kinds of hardware they use. It's not particularly, I think as, as Yusuf and I kind of mentioned, you know, discussed earlier, it's, their hardware isn't particularly exciting, it's not esoteric or anything like that, but it's very interesting from the, no Solaris, the, no Solaris, yeah. <laughs> They're not. They're not running on like some ARM hardware on you know super low power CPUs. They're, so they're not, nothing esoteric. But at the same time, it's interesting to see how a very very large, you know, one of the larger web fronts in you know in the world actually deals with their hardware issues, which is surprising because you know it's not. It's like I said. It's not. I mean, some of it is is decent hardware, but they're just they're just now moving to SSDs um, or at least testing SSDs. The only other interesting things are how they. Like how they build their Hadoop clusters, because that's something that you want to have locally. Um, it's just a lot of it's it's a lot of disk. But it was a really cool article to, to see how they do things and um, how you know how they actually monitor everything.
1: Yeah. Well, in generally, hardware kind of puts me into a coma because well, it just does. But the other interesting thing about the article is that it talks about why they have different capacity sizing sets for each app. And things, and that actually interests me more than just let's talk about our hardware. I yeah. know
3: yeah, that is that's and that's that's really they, it's how they I like how they talk about how they plan their hardware. Like that's that's something I find very interesting. Like capacity
0: planning for different services is something that is a is like a dark art. I'll have to definitely go check that out because that's something certainly that uh, I've always run into as as it's one of those things that really takes you by surprise most of the time. Uh, is capacity planning on the build side all of the time unless you consciously kind of plan for it. Uh, so certainly learning how uh, how they do that will be will be interesting. Nothing nothing
3: worse than not having any space left in your build rack. <laughs> when yeah. You, when you know yeah. You need another, you're
0: like well the builds aren't going to get any faster without another piece of hardware. Well, my favorite too is the we've run out of space on the file server and so all of the builds are failing because of that problem. Yeah. <laughs> we've, okay. we've run out of all of the space or like all
3: of the network is down, so nothing's happening.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. and if you have a predictable industry, you generally fall into a cycle, right? So retail starts in the summer for planning that sort of thing, and, and uh, healthcare industries start with planning for what is it when they re up when everybody re ups their uh, their insurance and everything like that. Corporate. Stuff. Oh, oh so uh, the
3: renewal period open yeah, yeah so
1: that's generally a lot of times either the end of the year or January and stuff and so they have cycles too where you start your capacity planning at x time for you know your peak season which is y whatever so unless you're in a completely unknown uh, industry generally you can fall into that cycle and do pretty well
3: yeah there's the the universities that I've worked at do the same like you plan for the the incoming fall rush of you know students signing up for services and you scale out your hardware, but that's it. Like that's all you scale for, right? There is each year you you and we we have to plan capacity. You know how you know look at like actual trends of enrollment so that we can determine how many servers we're going to need in
1: four years.
3: It's very right. it's very cool yes. when you have that like predictable cycle.
1: Yeah, it's good to have business who are accurate too at giving you numbers that they think are going to matter.
3: Isn't that what the cloud was supposed to fix though?
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yes. Uh, so, so, the, so, so, Yusuf, I'm going to tell you a story about mainframes and you, the fact that universities still like using them. Uh, I'm being, so I'm being facetious. So. <laughs> All right, no, no, but... no, I really want to talk to you about mainframes. <laughs>
1: okay. Oh, let's not talk about mainframes.
3: Solaris. Yeah. Solaris. Solaris is fine.
1: just to sidetrack for a second, was anybody at DevOps Days?
0: Yeah. No, so, no. So, just... so, when
1: I was there, somebody set up an open space to talk about uh, legacy. Uh, chef provisioning and things, or even legacy configuration management provisioning. And I went in thinking that it would be, we would be talking about, you know, 10 year old apps and stuff like that. And it turned out that they had digressed down into trying to figure out how to provision COBOL with modern day configuration management and stuff like that and old mainframe stuff. So that was kind of interesting. <laughs> I actually fell asleep, but um, it, was, it was quite a lively discussion while I was awake. <laughs>
0: All right, we'll be back talking about is there such a thing as too much automation on The Ship Show? Uh, So our discussion topic tonight, uh, is there such a thing as too much automation? This topic came up, uh, I I was sent a job rec and they were talking about automation in the job rec and it was really interesting, the focus that they placed on automation. And then in talking with them more, it was, they kind of had this mantra that that everything should be automated. And it kind of turned into an interesting discussion about like, should everything be automated? And is there such a thing as too much automation? And, and what happens when you automate everything? Is it always net, net positive? Always. So I'm going to open that question up to you guys. I mean, is there such a thing as too much automation? What do you guys think? I would say no. There is, there is, a, there is a careful, there's, there's a
3: line, but there's no such, there's there are certain things that, May not be ideal to automate, or may be difficult to automate. But I think you can constantly iterate on your automation process as long as you're as long as you're doing that. Then there's not really a limit. You'll you'll find the line that is reasonable, um, even if you continue to automate. That's 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 my that's my opinion. I don't think there's such a thing as you you can definitely like have a run into an issue where automation bites you, but anything else could have presented that scenario as well and you can also fix it in your next iteration
0: that's my feeling on it well certainly i mean i think it's obvious that it's go- if you have a process that you commonly do that isn't automated chances are you're more likely that that's more likely to bite you from the inconsistency of it being done manually But so, so from a risk perspective, it's actually riskier to not automate that. I I Um, think. I think the potential of your automation biting you,
3: or or the instances where your automation would bite you, are worth discovering and are valuable, are just as valuable, and if not more so than you know having inconsistent software where you find these bugs. You can at least kind of metric it out and then you know slowly improve.
1: I'd be curious to hear uh, what the use cases would be for too much automation. I think. Uh, one of the concerns is that people try to do everything with the same tool, and I'm not sure that that's actually always the best use case there so I mean if you try if you tie yourself up in a pretzel trying to get everything done with with one tool, sometimes that's not actually the right answer right So I mean chef has a deploy resource, but if you have a, a complex enough application setup, do you really want to use it, or do you want to use an actual orchestration tool or something like that? I guess is my point. some people use every use chef for everything, but on the other hand, should you? I mean yeah there's
3: there's i think that's that 's actually what I want to talk about more is is basically is doing your automation right there are bad ways to automate i 've seen places where it's like let 's do everything with this one like like sasha's saying with chef or and it 's like well no no that's that 's actually a really bad idea or, or there are perhaps better tools to do this thing and people want to just you know make the one you know the one tool to rule them all and that 's bad that 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 results in some huge problems just because somebody had a had a particular technology
0: preference, um, as opposed to a something that solves the problem in the best way. That's a really interesting point because I've been reading um, Charles Perrow's *Normal Accidents*, uh, and it's a fascinating book. It's actually a really old book. It was he wrote it uh, in 1985, right before Chernobyl. So he's and his book talks about complex system theory and complex systems. And so he makes a a lot of references to nuclear plants and chemical plants and aviation and, and basically complex systems. And there's actually a lot there that is applicable, I think, in a DevOps context. But you guys were talking about tooling and one tool to rule them all. The flip side of that is if you have multiple tools that are specialized, you've increased the complexity of your system. And how do you manage that? I mean, how do you make, you know, I think the key point of his book is that as systems become more complex it becomes harder to model them and and the interactions become more difficult to predict Uh, and that's why it's called normal accidents because he talks about you know we we look at certain things as things that should never happen but in fact they're actually pretty normal in industry I mean what what's your take on that I would I would
3: argue that that
0: you can make the single tool
3: infinitely more complex than you would by, just by necessity, make the, the kind of like the system of multiple different parts. So you can, you can put far too much complexity into one tool, and that would be worse than having what you would assume would bring more complexity by having several different tools. I don't think that would always, that would always be the case, that you would, gain, you would get more complexity with the individual tools. I think you can actually reduce complexity with individual tools that are better suited for their each, each of their discrete tasks.
1: Right. Well, and one of the big advantages to open source in general is that there are a lot of people out there using them with all the very similar use cases. But once you pick one tool and you don't want to use any others, what you end up with is a lot of custom code and, uh, and edge cases that you're, you're composing for. And then uh, the community aspect becomes less relevant. And then all of a sudden you're off in – that's the, the reason we want to use things like Chef and Puppet anyway is to avoid uh, somebody's custom Perl scripts that are being maintained somewhere, Right. So
3: yes, yes. yes. Once avoiding you curl get into
1: edge cases and things like that, then uh, you're not really you're moving away from one of the main advantages, which is a uh, common use case. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's certainly
3: true. Yeah, um, as, as you move as you move further away from that use case, you reduce the pool of talent which
0: will which will potentially work on your edge case, uh, which is yeah, which is yeah. unfortunate. We used to call that buying the script, right? I mean, in terms of you just bought the the organization that you work for just be, they suddenly own that and and they have to support it and so it's like you you bought the script
1: right i used to work for a company that uh, would spe- would specialize everything that they bought they customized it to a fairly well and, and um, upgrades were impossible and i'm talking enterprise sized suites and so they would, they would buy a suite and they were an enterprise and they would, they would uh, specialize it and customize it to their needs to the point where it couldn't be upgraded ever. It pretty much was just lost at that point and uh, was very difficult to support as well. And uh, they finally found themselves trying to get away from that idea that we would have to customize everything to make everything work and went looking for best of breed solutions instead.
3: Yeah, that's a problem, especially with large enterprises. Let's just let's just we'll just pay the money for this tool that no one will want to learn how to use, or and will die when we try and upgrade it in a year.
1: It's, it's, it's amazing
3: how short-sighted even highly,
0: or somewhat highly technical industries can be once they once they've achieved a certain mass. It's it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I actually uh, worked with a client once that had the same argument. They said, you know, we we don't want to buy that infrastructure. We don't we want to use you know an open source tool. Let's for for whatever they were using, uh, whatever they needed. And so they they did that, but then they ended up hiring all of the people that worked on that tool. And they basically you know there was a kind of a management change, and they ended up just buying that tool because they hired everyone that. Wrote that school, and so they ended up migrating. It's you know you see that where they where uh, organizations there's this creaky you know ten year old script that they've owned, and then they move to you know open source or best of breed tools, and then it's a slide back to that sometimes. Uh, where, you know where it takes another ten years, but then they have a custom thing again.
3: Well, it's a it's a, you know two steps forward, one step back kind of like you know
0: they're going they're trying to
3: get the best of breed, but then they still get entrenched in the same system they were before. So you, it's it's best of breed for so long. Right, yeah. um, well, and that's because partly
1: you know uh, tools don't solve your cultural problems. So you can want to make everything right as much as you can, but if you if you can't uh, align your culture uh, and your attitudes with that, then it, you will slide right back into customized solutions and and personally maintained scripts. That Absolutely. is like,
0: the, yeah, I've been there.
1: It's so sad.
0: We've all, yeah, we've all had the, the Pearl script, right? The They're, dreams
3: are coming back. Can we stop talking about it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're here to dredge up all of that. So here's here's another uh, interesting issue that automation brings up. So you look at automation in other industries, and, uh, you know, I always make the aviation references because uh, I, I love to do that. And, you know, it's coming out the Air France 447 accident, that was the accident the Air France A340 that went down in the Atlantic uh, a few years ago. A lot of experts are looking at that accident from an automation perspective and from the perspective of, you know, the pilots relied so much on the automation in general in their daily course of action that they sort of lost uh, what they call, you know, stick and rudder flying, where they can just Fly the plane if they need to. Uh, there's actually a number of accidents. I don't mean to pick on that one. Where that, you know, that was a big question confronting that particular industry. Is 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 there too much automation and relying on it making, from a skill set perspective, inducing the kind of wrong incentives? Uh, so my still cu- it's still a culture problem. Well, so that's my question to you guys. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you think there's risk of if we automate everything and rely on that automation and then nobody has to use it? Do we? Lose institutional knowledge, or yeah. you know, yeah. uh, Yusuf. We should yeah. go back
3: to biplanes, and <laughs> um, we should just completely revert all of this. That's 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 my problem with that particular angle. Is that it's it's a culture problem. Like the pilots weren't trained to deal with the situations well, or hadn't paid attention, and yet they may have relied on these automations. But we we rely on automation for a lot of things like supplying us power, our our internet services. Those those things are, you know, are automated to a large degree. So I don't think that's a I still think it's a it's it's a pilot problem. It's a human problem at the at the root of it. Oh,
0: Certainly, yeah, yeah. Certainly. Yusuf, you were you were gonna say something.
2: Yeah, I, I have an interesting story from from another industry. Uh, my uncle's actually a configuration well, I guess I don't know what the, the Equivalent of what is in the, in the satellite engineering world, but he's he does configuration management. The point is, is that he, a couple of years ago he told me about an interesting story where they had some RF automated test suites and it was running on really old hardware. The software hadn't been updated in you know who knows how long. And basically, they got to a point where nobody knew what the automation was doing. <laughs> and they knew that it was part of the process, but it was kind of like okay, so there's this automated. Test, you know, process that's running. We need to launch the satellite. Uh, you know, nobody knows what it's doing until it started to fail, and at that point, they actually had to revert back to uh, manual testing, rewrite all the automated test suites because the original developers who wrote the uh, the automated uh, test suites didn't do any documentation. There was no training, so I I kind of agree with the whole culture thing. If uh, if it's part of your culture to uh, you know, not just you know, bang out some code and, and, and say, okay, well, this you know, this manual task is automated. You have to actually train people, get some documentation, maintain the automation. I, I don't really believe that automation is a set it and forget it type discipline. So,
0: yeah. well, so that's that's actually really important. And I set to your point about the cultural perspective or the cultural issue. I think the lesson from you know the reference to aviation there is there is kind of a once I've automated it it's fine i don't need you know it, it it's working and there may not we may not have crossed the chasm of automation isn't is it by itself is not enough you actually need to make sure that it's documented and that it it, it is not automated once by one person and then you have a it, it, yes it's automated and that's fine but if they get hit by a bus then nobody else knows the automation and i and i actually i mean you know this was another question for for all of you are there limits to automation and specifically in terms of you know one of the things I was thinking of as a limitation is a lot of times from a management perspective if you have automation that's doing your deploys and and maybe it's a complex deploy so you know you have maintenance windows of a couple hours to do deploy whatever it is right and something goes wrong with the automation maybe there's a, again back to complex systems maybe there's an interaction that you didn't model and you have an all-hands-on-deck response to fix this problem. But then going and explaining to you know, the management chain, well, as it's happening, we can't deploy in a couple hours because of these problems. Sometimes I, that's been met with, well, I thought you automated it and there's not a uh, understanding that yes we've automated it but it's not like well, most what you
3: what you do is soft. you show them at that at that point you show them the 937 other deploys that went flawlessly in the past week
0: oh and, sure you know, this, no, right, right but so it's all not I'm not talking about that. I'm actually talking about when when there's something is wrong with the automation and you need to actually slow down and do some hardcore debugging. That may extend the maintenance window, may extend the length that it takes to get the build out. But you have this sort of production pressure. It's like, well, it's automated. Just keep. Let Let, let me say it this way. We we're talking about deploys a little bit last week. I've seen like a tendency sometimes because it's automated, push the deploy button and it fails. We'll push it again push it again and it's like well no that's actually not gonna solve the problem but right that-
3: that's that's just still, that's that to me is still just file under bad culture like that is that i mean that's a that's a that's a that you can get away from that problem it's like no no when something breaks let's like let's try and fix this the right way so no. in that
2: case wouldn't you just revert back to doing it manually i mean like that satellite story that i brought up uh, you know their automated test um suites were failing so they just you know, it was a lot faster for them just to test manually. What? And, you know, why, yeah, faster. What's faster,
3: so- faster does not make right, though. In that in that particular case, they put probably. I mean, they should have fixed the automated testing. Obviously, you have production deadlines and all those other things. But like, if your testing is broken, you should fix your testing, not scrap it for manual. I've seen that happen so many times, and the in the net benefit is, or it's it's not a net, it's, it's a net loss. in, so- you know, in the long run.
0: Yeah, so so I I think you can go back to manual testing, but that's that's actually was the the reason I brought up the aviation example because you found a couple of things. You found that the engineer you know, the, the pilots were so used to the automation. When they didn't have it, they kind of actually did the wrong thing. So if your automation goes down and you go back to manual testing, are you gonna for whatever reason, are you gonna miss something? That's the one issue. And then the other issue is is sort of trying to explain that just mashing the button when it's not working is not a solution to the problem, and and so yeah, you know, I I think Seth, you're right. It's a, a largely a cultural issue, but I think it's easy, especially from a, a managing the business perspective, to be able to think, well, you kind of get used to. Well, deploys take two hours, and then when suddenly you say someone comes to you and says, well, this deploy is going to take twelve hours because of these reasons, kind of. Uh, lose the understanding about, well, remember when it was manual and deploys took twelve hours. It's like you know it's easy to kind of rely on the automation so much that you can make. I make sure I keep a scrapbook from the bad
3: times that I can open up and show the management and <laughs> the CEOs. Day. Yeah, that's a good do, you, idea. do you, I was like I was like, would we like to go into the It's like like Grimm's fairy tales, but of just like really <laughs> depressing <laughs> hardware and software failures or failures of culture. And I just like keep that and hold on to that so that I can show that to them. Where can we buy that book on Amazon, Seth? (laughs) we should write that book we should write well, that uh, book.
1: one of the things too that i've learned from listening to john allspaw talk is that you don't wait for failures to do postmortems either that you need to take some time and and, and uh, actually analyze why things are going well and and why your deployment went flawlessly you know what what contributed to that because that can actually help you in the future make sure that things continue to go flawlessly it might help you identify pending problems or out, outliers that could affect you in the future as well yeah it could become yeah, yeah
3: that's looking a, looking at percentiles of like wait why did this query even? though it wasn't that much longer take on average two times longer than the week before like little yes, sir. things like that
1: or we did x and we just barely recovered from a, a a potential disaster that was not a disaster because somebody thought fast but maybe there's a way for us to prevent that from threatening us in the future that sort of thing too yeah. so again culture any post um <laughs> the other
3: the other thing i think that is a culture thing that is something that was brought up at chef Conf, and i think it was sc e. robbins was drills like running drills for when all of your your things go down like here let's pull the plug on this server and like everyone just knows that today we're doing a fire drill like we're gonna let everything go down and see if we can bring it all back up the way it's supposed to happen and i really i'm a huge advocate of doing that because people get make really really bad decisions when they're in these they're you know they're kind of in the oh god everything's went down if they've had to actually see it happen and had deal with it calmly, knowing that it's not a true failure, they might do better in, you know, it's drilling makes you better at the real thing.
0: Well, you know, you guys will probably throughout the show hate that I always make the aviation reference, but I really do think there's a lot of value there. And that's why, you know, that they stick pilots in simulators and test that stuff for exactly that reason. And it's for, you know, I, I've always said, release engineering and DevOps, a lot of times, is really a, uh, a human factors exercise, and both of those are human factors. So I think that that yeah, definitely, that's a good point.
1: So last year, maybe two years ago now, I read that I read TV Checklist Manifesto, and one of the things that really stuck with me. And there was the idea, it was a lot of the construction references, right? I mean, that's the construction business is kind of a solved problem, and they have a lot of really great workflow softwares and things like that. But one of the things they still do is they have a lot of human factor that they inject. So uh, in in well-run construction projects, they actually have places for people to note risks and issues and uh, have them addressed on a regular basis and things like that. And I I believe that that one of the big things is that they they also operate in the the no-blame culture so that you can actually report things without worrying about uh, being scapegoated.
3: Reporting things because that's the right thing to do as opposed to, you know, having to worry about reporting
1: the thing. Right, because people could die in a skyscraper if you don't.
3: Yeah, exactly. Like, it's better than somebody just say that. Oh no, that's yeah. totally. That's actually a great. That's a great analogy. I've never actually thought of construction. I've always, I've always been a fan of the you know, uh, the ops code or Jesse's uh, the firefighting approach um, because right. it's you know, incredibly applicable. But the construction one is actually really cool because they do have a lot of mechanisms, and it's kind of at least it a solved problem. Like that industry's been around for kind of a long time. So
1: yeah, if you haven't read that book, it's actually a pretty quick read and um, very interesting. The Checklist Manifesto.
0: Yeah, You've done. It, it's it done. Yeah, it's a good book. And, and, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, we always talk about DevOps. People think DevOps, they think operations, but it's more than that. They're, you know, there's the operational aspect of DevOps. And when I say that, you have all of these industries that have sort of done the human factors part, they've done the process part, and, you know, process is not a dirty word in those industries where, you you know, construction, you know, aviation, dispatch, you have fire and police dispatch. Those are all operational, and there's a lot of lessons there that it seems like we want to learn them all over again instead of ask them, ask those industries. You know what is applicable. So, quick question to wrap uh, this uh, discussion up: What shouldn't be automated? Is there anything we shouldn't automate? So, so I, I didn't have,
3: I didn't have. There, there are things you may not be good ideas to automate. DNS,
0: for one, sometimes. Do you mean <laughs> DNS? Updates or? Like
3: DNS updates or like having your, your DNS fed out of, say, something like Chef, you know, having your, oh, your uh-huh. DNS server records. Because one mistaken update or one missing semicolon or something could send your world into disarray. Um, and maybe it's good to, to have certain things that are, are
0: populated in a different fashion.
3: So I'm going
0: to save my horror story one because I'll save that for a second. <laughs> okay. Well, so uh, one of the ones I always think of, uh, and I think there are differing perspectives on this, but I've seen this go south. A lot of people try to automate their signing, and so you know if you've got Microsoft Authenticode signing, or you've got driver signing, or in the mobile world if you've got iPhone iOS signing, they go and automate that. And I'm not against on its face automating the signing process per se, but I've always thought of signing as part of the release process. And so you don't sign it until it's released, you know, until the build is actually the official release build of that software. And so that that process of signing is asserting, hey, this is the actual release. So if one of the other builds leaks out, it's not signed. And and I've seen a lot of back and you know a lot of actually disagreement on that. Uh, but if you're going to automate signing, then you have to deal with storing the cert somewhere. And then is the is, are the passwords empty so you, you can automate it, or do you you know? And I and I think I've seen both both sides where they've completely automated it, uh, the signing, and they've run into those issues. The cert so there's, a, is, there's
3: a there's a price to pay either way. So I, I've actually seen the the manual. So the manual release, not necessarily say with cert signing, but with say the the build that will go to to production, right. where you actually have those last five steps are actually a series. It's a checklist. It's a, I, as a human, am going to do this, give this code integrate, and then I'm going to build it. I'm going to make sure it builds clean. And then I'm going to do this, you know, do these several checklist items. So there's, there is still some human, it's still somewhat automation. Um, it's It's a series of repeatable steps, but you do have human eyes looking at it. I think there's, there's definitely some Some value in that for specific things, especially kind of like final checks on release software.
0: Yeah, well, and so you know, it's interesting for the signing stuff. I've seen how I've seen that problem solved, and I think it's actually a good way to solve it. And and you see this kind of uh, iOS prompts this a little bit because it's part of the workflow. You sign, you know, if you have a development build of an iOS app, you can you have to sign it with a developer key. So people will sign. The bits with a dev key that kind of everybody has, so the nightly builds get signed with that. so I've seen that before uh, driver signing as well on the Microsoft on Microsoft stuff uh, where you need to sign a driver. So you sign it with a key that is very low value, right? It says developer key on it. If that build leaks out or the key leaks out, it's not a huge risk for the business. Uh, you don't have to recall. The key, if it leaks out, you know, I mean, it doesn't mean you can be careless with it, but it's not the same as the official key. I, I think the happy medium there is something like I was—I always, always think of war games and the the brass keys and the in the panel to launch the missiles. You want to automate that the last five steps you were talking about, Seth, in your example, but the actual p- prompting that automation, you still want a human turning that key, uh even yeah, if if the still, five steps still, are automated.
3: There's still some value there, like. I think in, in, as long as it's as long as it's a process, then that's that's the other thing. It's like for me, automation is more is is not necessarily like having a computer do every single step for you. Automation sometimes will include part you know, a human following a process, a well defined process. So it doesn't have to be purely you know an, an automaton doing everything. Sometimes it's good to have human eyes on, it, even if you're doing this if you're clicking the exact same button every time, or you're doing. A repeating set of like you know push build here rename
0: this file to this well, it's it's still useful that's so, interesting that you refer to that as automation because i think most people would not would, wouldn't consider that quote-unquote automation i, I think it's I, I agree
3: with you i think i yeah, think it's part you, of a fully fledged automation it's automation culture maybe not automation strictest definition seth yeah.
2: so are, are you telling me that you, you don't want skynap
3: I mean a that uh, come on. Well, oh, no. I I I'd like to thank our robot overlords in advance. Yes. <laughs> I I'd like to be on their side when when it comes.
0: To, so so no, I'm I'm cool with Skynet. Like, As, I have problems with it. So is that where we've ended up? If you automate, then we have Skynet, and we're all screwed. Is that where? Is that I, just,
3: where I just I just think I just think before you push your software out to the world, you should at least have somebody maybe take a look at it.
0: I no arguments here. All right. Well, we'll be back in a moment here on the ship show. Uh, we're going to do a, a sort of a listener feedback statement. I announced this week we, we called it Dear Abby for DevOps, though we were having a discussion earlier if anybody still reads Dear Abby. But we got a couple of, of qu- good questions, and uh, so certainly we're going to try to start a hashtag for it, and, and hopefully we'll get some more because we, we would love to discuss more of this stuff. So let's start this evening. At C. Weber asks... Why is it so hard to get people to talk about the culture aspect of DevOps instead of the tools? Seth, what do you think? So I don't think it's hard if you're
3: looking in the right places to find people to talk about the culture aspect of DevOps. I mean, that's, that's kind of the a lot, like what a lot of the, the conferences and things are talking about DevOps. Now, inside of organizations, that is a problem, uh, finding organizations uh, – you know they care about just the tools. They're they're not actually caring about the culture. So it's it's. I mean, guess who's your audience? I think it's a lot harder if you're just talking to like if you're talking to big enterprise to get them to talk about DevOps. They just want you to do a job. So that's that's my feeling. It depends on who you're asking. Sasha, what do you think?
1: Well, I think it's tough sometimes because people have trouble quantifying it, and it depends on you know where you're talking about talking about it too. One of the things that I think a lot of people hope is that if they bring in tools that can excite people it will transform culture for them. And so mm-hmm. I think they find it easier to to introduce tooling than to try and influence attitudes and feelings because it's much harder. Speaking of someone who's been in some places like that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yusuf, what do you think? Yeah, um, uh, uh, you know, humans are, are inherently complex beings. So, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I think it's just when you start talking about the kind of warm, fuzzy stuff, you know, culture, that type of stuff, I mean... A lot of people don't want to really open up about that. And
0: um, so Yeah, I, I think Sasha hit the nail on the head. Culture is hard to talk about and I think organizationally, culture is one of the hardest things to change. Especially you know there's a lot of like, hey, if we get this tool, it'll fix all of our cultural problems. And I see that all the time where there's a process issue or a people issue, which is a culture issue, and they wanna to add tools. Let's do a Workflow tool for this. Sometimes that's an okay idea. Sometimes it's not. I just think it's hard to get people to talk about it because it's a hard subject, and it's easier to talk about a concrete tool. So, uh, Drakino asks. I hope I pronounce that right. What are good questions to ask during an interview towards a potential employer to gauge their current DevOps health? That we talked about interviewing a couple shows ago. So, what do you think, Yusuf? Well, I, I think uh,
2: you know you can ask them. On- Things like how often do uh, you know operations and development have any kind of outings? You
3: know, company outings. Seth. So, you know, asking for for me, it's it's I, I like asking questions that are indicative. You know, we'll, we'll kind of like pull the pull their culture out so I can see them. So one of one of my favorite ones to ask is you know. I I ask them how many deploys they've done this week, how many have failed. I try and get ratios and numbers to see, because if they have the numbers, then they're obviously paying attention. They're probably doing it, they're probably, it's more indicative that they're doing it right. If they don't have monitoring, they don't have anything, either they should be bringing me in to put it there or understand that I'm going to be, you know, devoting a significant amount of my time to getting what I consider to be basics. And so I go, that's where I start to, I started, you know, trying to find out, like, What metrics tools are you using? What trending tools are you using? Do you have orchestration or configuration management? Okay. Sasha, what do you think?
1: Uh, A lot of times, I like to ask them about what they've been doing. So the last place that I talked to that I'm currently working with, I I asked them if they pair, and they did. I asked them also if they'd fired anybody from this team, and if so, why? And they told me that uh, for two reasons. One, uh, he was overly critical without offering solutions, and two, he didn't like to pair. So uh, those were, were big deals to me, and... Generally, I like to kind of see their workspace too and uh, find out uh, what they're doing for initiatives, like what what's not going so well, like if they had time, what they would work on and things like that. And that gives me an idea of what they care about. You're never going to know for sure, right, until yeah. you get in there. But uh, there are ways to at least know that they're serious about what they're doing and if it matches up with what you're serious about.
0: So, you know, it's interesting. You see a trend in a lot of different industries moving towards, we were talking about checklists earlier, but checklist assessment. Uh, So in ERs, if a stroke, you know, they assess these five things. I actually like to ask somewhat random questions and I've been meaning to actually make a list of these so that, but, but, you know, there are certain things uh, from a DevOps health perspective that you can always, and a release engineering perspective, you can always kind of tell if you ask, like, and, and it's one of the innocuous ones, is the time on your servers correct? And that seems like a really stupid question, but you would be surprised at how many environments they don't have NTP set up and they, their servers are skewed all over the place. And, and it actually affects things in weird ways, you know, when you're looking at logs and stuff like that. So if if they don't have that set up, it implies what they value and what, uh, or maybe where where they are in terms of DevOps tells It's one of the two cases. If they have a huge DevOps team and nobody thinks this is a problem, that's kind of a yellow flag for me. So... I have a checklist of those types of questions and uh, I should actually blog about them and write them all down because they're floating in my head, but but yeah, that's what I try to ask. So uh, we'll do that segment again and we'll post when we do it, probably do the DevOps Dear Abby hashtag or something. It's kind of a weird one, but we'll, we'll give it a try. Uh, those are great questions. Uh, in fact, we got some other suggestions from listeners this week about topics to actually discuss in the main segment, so we're kind of looking at those and uh, figuring out where to slot them in, so it's great to hear from you guys and gals out there what, what's, what your issues are and what you w- would like to talk about. And actually, on that note, in the next episode, we will have our first guest, so we're looking forward to that, and uh, it's it'll be a surprise who it is. So, from San Francisco, this is Paul Reed signing off. From San Diego, this is Yusuf signing off. From Austin, this is Seth signing off.
1: Visiting in New York City, this is Sasha signing off.
0: We'll see you in a couple weeks.